This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are learning how to invest. Like Warren Buffett. Oh, I thought it was like, like full stop. Mother. We are learning like the, how to invest. Like the best people in the world. I'm not going to spend any time talking about We're this. We're not we, learning any crappy nobody investing. We're learning like the best people in the world. <laughs> That's it. That is the truth of it. And it's so amazing that this is not taught in schools. I mean, there are a few places maybe where they're starting to get into it a little bit. Um, but most of the world is functionally operating as if the stock market prices all businesses correctly um, at their values and does it all the time, and that there are no exceptions to that rule, or very few that may come along once in a while if you're a soft version of that whole modern portfolio theory thing. The problem with that is, though, that investors like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and many, many others have followed a philosophy that says that stock prices and stock values often diverge. And when that happens, you can pay too much for a company or you can buy it super cheap. And so what we're working on on this podcast is the information you need to know to know when it's time to sell companies and get rid of them because they're ridiculously expensive and Mm -hmm. times when you should be buying them um, when they're ridiculously cheap. And frankly, if you wanted to keep doing it with an exchange-traded fund like SPY or DIA um, or, or, or IWM, which is the Russell, you could do that. You could just say, okay, well, I'm going to be in the market when it's super cheap and I'm going to ride it up and I'm going to be out of the market when it's super expensive and I'm going to avoid having it go down. And so this podcast is really oriented toward investors who want to follow the principles of Warren Buffett and protect themselves from a big market drop. And that's what we're talking about. And uh, one of the well, things we're frankly, talking about... Well, frankly, I don't care about any of you all. I just care about myself and learning <laughs> about my own investing <laughs> and what I have to have questions about. And that, that so not true. in my opinion, is what this podcast is all about. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is so not true. Danielle, <laughs> Danielle is out there all the time working with people to to help them get over their fear of, of being involved in their own investing uh, work and to, to take it on as a practice. And I think this is something I've learned from her over the last couple, three years of this podcast, is that investing is best seen by most people as a practice. Mm-hmm. It's not a job. It's something you do that is, you're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to do it to the, to the best you can do it. And the key is to do it and improve. Yeah, totally. Totally. But I mean, seriously, like that's, everybody cares about their own experience and their own practice and their own investing. And I think that's what makes our podcast work is that I am deeply (laughs) (laughs) self-interested. 
<laughs> and my own experience has been the same as the experience of many other people. And I would say, actually, we are, to paraphrase Nixon, the great silent majority of people out there who are not naturally interested in finance and investing and yet know that we need to be doing something with our money. Generally, we need, we know that and then we do nothing and we try not to think about it. But therefore, if we can make it interesting and cool and fun and like a good part of life, amazingly enough, which is what we do here, Dad, then it works and it's not a hardship anymore and it's not painful. And you get a fabulous side benefit of making some money, hopefully. And having, and having freedom in your life. I mean, yeah. ultimately... Uh, we would we would jump on the bandwagon of financial independence retire early fire which is i think lovely and and yeah. uh, which only needs to learn about investing in order to do it better but the idea is excellent and that is have a life you know i a friend of mine is tim ferris who has great books and a great podcast and a great blog and is phenomenal and really enjoy tim tim's view of the world um and his book four-hour work week was a, you know, it was a national bestseller and really pointed in the direction that a lot of millennials and a lot of everyone of every generation, mm -hmm. including mine, who, you know, my generation is trying to get retired mm -hmm. uh, late. We're, we're the uh, financial, uh, what are we, financial hostages retiring <laughs> late. I don't know. Oh. It's just, we're a mess in the baby boom generation. And and we need to do something different now in order to not become a, a real burden to our kids. And so, but if, if I am a burden to you, honey, I, I would like Don't it worry. that you're a good investor so you can handle it. Oh, I know. Don't <laughs> worry. We got a room for you, dad. It's going to be fine. You, you won't be a burden. Well, well, it would take, it would take me failing to follow my own education. It would be really <laughs> ridiculous if that happened, but nothing's, nothing's impossible in the world. We can nothing's all impossible. That's right. I was just reading this really interesting profile of Jack Dorsey, who's the, I guess he's the CEO of Twitter. I think he is. Or he, anyway, he's like the head he of was, Twitter. He founder, yeah. Um, I think he's still the CEO. And he's the CEO of Square and the, the co-founder of Square. So he's the CEO of two major companies, which only a few other um, sort of tech people have ever accomplished. Steve Jobs was one. Elon Musk is one. And so I think he, according to this profile, seems to really like sort of having that title. Anyway, the point is, the article is all about how he's really into Vipassana meditation and does all these sort of alternative therapies and practices. And Steve Jobs did the same kind of stuff. And Elon Musk does all sorts of, you know, obviously like interesting things and talks about it on Twitter a lot. And um, there's sort of this vibe of wanting to live a better life amongst people who are very interested in changing the world. And I feel like we are part of that. Now, I'm not trying to be like a crazy tech founder billionaire, because that's its own section unto itself. But I'd rather be me and have a beautiful practice that really supports me in my life so that I can go and do whatever I want. So I can go to the Vipassana 10-day retreat, which I just read all about, thanks to Jack Dorsey, and, um, and go and 
whatever, like spend 10 days then reading about fascinating companies and finding out who I want to support with them. So there's this this vibe of like, it's not just, it's as you just said, it's not about finances necessarily. Like it's a, and I think it's not just us. It's not just investors, I think is what I'm bumbling towards here. There's a vibe of let's create better lives for ourselves internally and externally, and they should be symbiotic, not separate. I, I love that. And I think actually you have extremely great credentials, uh, for, um, joining Jack Dorsey at some meditation retreat. You've really oh, got the credentials. I'm not girl. worried about that. For sure. <laughs> I know you're not. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Danielle, we, we, we moved over to, uh, a meditation community in Iowa and she grew up in a, the meditation community school, the private school. For a transcendental and, meditation. Yeah. Transcendental meditation. And, and, uh, actually went for a year of school with, um, what would you call the, the the ladies I, it, you... it's a monastery essentially they're a group yeah. of women who have secluded themselves from the world and meditate about six or seven hours a day cumulatively and um yeah they're they're monks yeah in seventh grade you went there yeah i think seventh grade. no 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 ninth grade what was it? ninth grade ninth grade yeah and just spent spent that school year there with those with those monks with the ladies what do they call a, a female monk is it a monk there isn't really a good word, I think, because in Christian uh, tradition, yeah, it's nuns, but that's Christian. not right. No, right. no, monk is more Buddhist, <laughs> more. So there isn't really a good word. I don't know. I just say women who are monks. And, and by the way, you guys, this is um, this is the side of the podcast that we don't spend much time on. But just since we've wandered into <laughs> it here, um, I think I will will say that this tra- these alternative traditions, this this idea of meditation of pull, uh, meditation is kind of uh, a bit like pulling back the bow to to shoot an arrow, uh, you know, with a lot of a lot of speed to it, um, is a good metaphor for meditation. And that that community of meditators goes out across the world, across virtually every religion I've ever studied, has some component of this in it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Christianity does. And back um, back in the forties. A monk with the with the Catholic Church named um, Thomas Merton wrote a wonderful book of his research into the meditation techniques of other religions, and it's called the Seven Story Mountain, and it's really worth reading. Um, oh, I don't think this... I've ever read that. Really? Oh, it's no. great, um, and it's still still in print. Uh, it, it's a, a beloved book, exploring the concept of transcendence throughout the world. <laughs> Um, of pulling transcendence is basically going beyond thought into a really quiet, silent place <clears throat> where your body gets a deep rest and your mind is alert. And it's, um, it's very blissful, I guess is the bottom line. It's blissful, but it is also conducive to living a better life and to having a, a stronger impact on, on, uh, the world and, and toward getting into Dharma, which is, you know, not a not a real Western concept, but there's an idea out there in the East that I love, and it, it is that you're born into this life with a purpose, and following um, this path in life, that your purpose is following your dharma. They call it following your dharma, and um, it's the basic idea is that if you're in your dharma in your life, your life is is blissful. No matter what it is you're doing, you know you're doing the right thing. And that creates a great deal of happiness and joy 
even if you're struggling, yeah, you know, right? Struggle can be really a great thing. We have sports and we struggle and we do it on purpose and we have a blast. And um, and so Dharma is something that is is found by deep contemplation, I think. It's just it's a sense of what is right in your life. And I think that sense grows if you practice meditation, contemplative prayer, mm-hmm. following, I mean, even long distance running, uh, long distance swimming, playing basketball at the level of a Kobe Bryant or a Michael Jordan getting into the zone as they describe it is extremely descriptive of transcendence. And so it's there available, I think, in in an infinite number of ways. You think you just basically, you should try to find something in your life that takes you there. It's a beautiful uh, experience, I think, that can help as an investor so much. I was reading, uh, like I said, so I read this article about Jack Dorsey, which, by the way, is on Yahoo Finance. It came out on August 8th. Um, it's a long profile on Jack Dorsey. Very interesting. And so then that took me to read about Vipassana meditation, and which I didn't really know that much about. It's um, and, and as I was reading about it, it just all I could think about was being an investor because what Vipassana meditation is all about is attention to the body and attention to the breath, at least the version that I was reading about and being able to have perspective enough to have equanimity in pain. So it's Buddhist originally, Mm -hmm. but the way it's taught is separated from the belief side of it. And it's entirely about the idea that life is suffering and suffering, so which is a completely Buddhist thought. And I, you're looking at me, but I know lots of people disagree with that. So I'm just putting that out there. It's a Buddhist idea. And then in order to live through the suffering and come to that level of bliss, we have to be able to have perspective that the suffering will change and it will shift and it will disappear and future moments will be different than this moment right now. And as I was reading about this, and I have not practiced this kind of meditation, and I'm not an expert on it, but as I was reading about it, I just kept thinking about investing so much because investing can be so painful and scary when stuff is happening that you don't understand and you have no perspective on. And the equanimity comes, and this is what we talk about all the time, Dad, the equanimity comes when you know what you own, when you understand what you've bought and why you bought it and to put it very on point why you bought it at that price and then when the price goes down from that price you can feel calm because you understand and you have perspective even better you can feel joy yeah you can feel joy that's right that's right you can buy more you are getting an opportunity to buy more that's right at an even better price Mm -hmm. so yeah and i think that maybe it sounds a bit of a reach, but I don't think it is to be able to experience um, those feelings of fear and pain and, and whatever it is you feel in a meditation practice to that waking experience in an investing practice. I don't think that they're different. I think they actually support each other quite beautifully. So I love... I think your example of yoga is awesome. (laughs) You're like, get away from Vipassana. (laughs) I find yoga to be painful, (laughs) right? (laughs) Oh my God, don't we all? It almost feels like the point of yoga is pain. Oh my God, I just did this new 
video that I found online, which was great. And it was all about opening up your psoas, which is like your hips and your sort of front body, which for me is ultra tight. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, like I'm pretty awesome at this yoga thing. And I was doing this video in the living room and Nuno was reading a book near me. And I just was like, suffering dying <laughs> through this opening of the front body exercises doing these like literally like, he was just like oh now take your foot and do a lunge and then take your foot behind you and just pull it up over your shoulder just like this <laughs> and I was just like um excuse me what? What? And Nuno just started cracking up because he was like the noises you are making are of like an animal in pain <laughs> Well, we better we better put a word in here for all of our yoga instructors out there listening to this podcast. Oh, they know. They know. We know that we're not supposed to be in pain in yoga. No, that's that not we, true. This, that's not well, true. We, uh, not being a yoga guy, um, I just would say that every single time I'd be like, ah, they would tell you, back off. You have to be able to Shouldn't, breathe. As long you know, as you can breathe, yeah. you're okay. And I, okay. I could breathe. So I was okay. And I did come out of the pose earlier than the guy on the video because I was not okay for as long as he was. But it was, uh, it's, it is painful. And like, that's okay when you understand what's happening and you can feel where the limit is. I, I don't know how we got over into this level of pain thing as a, and, and I was really using yoga as a metaphor. I think it's because I, really I spent like off an hour there. reading about Vipassana meditation and because how powerful should, the pain is. <laughs> investing shouldn't be, no, it, I, yeah. I, unlike yoga, <laughs> investing shouldn't be painful. It, it's a practice that should be maybe that's why painless. I like investing so much. It's not painful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It should be fun. Um, it should consist essentially of learning more about the world that we live in and learning about something in it deeply, right? And yeah. when you get deeply into one thing, you discover you have just improved your ability to see the world more clearly. And I love that about it. So if I'm learning about trains because I'm interested in buying Burlington Northern a few years ago, and so I'm reading all these books about intermodal transportation and how that thing evolved, you know, and the whole... Oh, it's the best, you know, right? Just, it's the best. It's like all of a sudden you're going like, wow, yeah. I just been driving by train, freight trains my whole life, not paying any attention to them and not even noticing that they went from boxcars to these stacks of trucks beds, basically. And the whole world has changed. They didn't do boxcars anymore. It's just all trucks. So it's amazing, man. It's like the world is, is such a fascinating place when you start to see how things have evolved to where they are. Totally. And that is a big part of it's what we do as best. an investor. It's the best. Like nerds of yeah, the world absolutely. unite. It's the best. Speaking of train companies, how would you feel if the CEO of a given train company was paid in some manner related to the stock price, dad. And let's say that company was also buying back its stock. Hmm. Hmm. In order to get the CEO to be paid relative to the higher stock Look price. Look at me getting us hmm. on track. Look at that. <laughs> Which means, is there some possibility 
that buybacks could be driven by a lack of integrity. Yes, we can explore that. So <laughs> let's just we've say, used up all our time today, folks, <laughs> talking about pain. I think pain. we can wrap up buybacks today. <laughs> we, let's just say that the good reason for a CEO to buy back their own stock by his or her, hers or her company's stock is that the stock price is quite cheap relative to the intrinsic value of the company. Okay, wait a second. So now, I know that I made the transition, but now I have to actually transition my brain. So okay, say that one more time. So now we're talking about buybacks. We've been talking about buybacks for multiple episodes. What right. that is, is when a company buys its own stock on the open public market and then brings it into the right. company and retires it. And therefore, each individual share of stock that's out there now owns a larger percentage of the company. And we're not going to recap the rest of it. Go listen to those episodes. So what we got onto last time was how CEOs are compensated and how maybe, maybe they have an incentive to make stock prices go up using buybacks. Yes. So we can say that there's two forms of buybacks. Buybacks with integrity and buybacks without integrity. Oh, I like that structure. Buybacks for an ulterior motive that benefits the CEO um, without a corresponding benefit to the owner of the business. It's mm. a one-sided uh, weighted transaction. Um, so the good one to start with is where the CEO understands that price and value can be different in the stock market, that the price of their stock is not necessarily the value, and they recognize that, oh, wow, it's 2009, and um, we are Apple Computer, mm-hmm. And our stock has dropped to some ridiculously low level. We know that the future is bright and the value of the business is much higher than the current stock price. And in that case, buying back the stock gives every single shareholder a larger piece at a super good price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we're going to allocate capital to, to Apple just like an investor would who's getting a bargain. Yeah. So every dollar we spend is actually producing, let's say at that point in time, at least $2 of value, which is an extraordinary bargain. It's really hard to do that by just investing in the company, growing the company faster to get two to one right away is really hard to do. So buying back the stock when it's super on sale is a really good idea. And Warren Buffett right now is contemplating with $110 billion buying back his own stock. And we know that because at the last annual meeting, they were talking well, about it. Well, and they've been it. buying little chunks, but nothing to, you know, write home about. Which, in my mind, tells you that they're thinking it's not a horrible deal right now. And I think Charlie said yeah. this. It's pretty straightforward. It's not a horrible yeah. deal right now. But Berkshire is roughly at $200 a share. If there's a stock market crash and the stock goes down to $100 a share, those guys are going to be spending a lot of money on their own stock. Yeah. And that's because they believe the value of Berkshire, now imagine this, they believe the value of Berkshire, long-term, the value of Berkshire today is $300 a share. Who told you that? $300 a share. $250 to $300. If they can buy the stock at $100, I'm ballpark guessing. So this is a PBT number. Well, I've I've looked at it and I have a pretty good idea. That that's the price. And then I think the fact that Buffett has bought some stock at the 190 range is a pretty good indicator that it's below 
the the intrinsic value. So ballpark two fifty to three hundred okay. makes okay. sense. And so, so that's not. Um, I just want to be clear. That's not something they've said, right? Or have they? No, I didn't think so. Okay. They haven't said that. They've said it more or less. Yeah, talking about book value right. and when they would buy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, they're buying back their stock at a hundred gives the shareholder who stays in the stock maybe almost a three to one return immediately in terms of the real value of what they just purchased. That's pretty good. You want to use my money and give me a three to one return immediately. I'm pretty okay with that. Mm-hmm. All right. Now then let's take a company that may be worth only a hundred dollars a share and it's selling for 300 and the CEO is buying back their stock. In that case, they're wasting $200 a share. They're throwing it away because the value ultimately will be achieved in the market. And, and we'd have to ask, why would they do that? So they would do it because of what you just started off with, which is that by raising the earnings per share, which what happens when you buy back stock, right? If you, mm-hmm. have, you have $100 of earnings and 100 shares, your, your earnings are a dollar per share. And if you make it down to 50 shares, you buy back 50 shares. Now that hundred dollars of earnings is two dollars a share. So all of a sudden the CEO starts to look like he's a genius. His stock options kick in. If he can keep the stock price up, everybody on his management team is benefiting by getting stock options that are in the mm-hmm. money, and they all look good to shareholders that are short term. But meanwhile, for long term shareholders, they have done a horrible disservice. They've sold off equity at a horrible, horrible rate of return. And, and it's really heinous that they would do it. But that's what's out there. And I would say the majority of, man, not even the majority, the vast majority of stock buybacks in 2018 were in category two, not category one. Well, they've got to be. I mean, there's just been so many buybacks like so many companies uh, most companies okay i shouldn't say that because i don't actually know so many companies are buying back their own stock to the point that it's now reported about regularly in the financial media and i read something i don't have the source but i read something that said it's actually mostly large cap companies that are doing that um the smaller mid and smaller cap companies are are not really buying as much and so um, so there's that question of why that is. Well, the part of it is just because they don't have the, the access to the yeah. cash. Right now, these large cap companies, these are the big, big guys worth billions and billions of dollars. Um, they can go out and borrow money at super low prices. So this... Well, so you're saying the they're borrowing money to buy back their stock? To buy back their own stock, yeah. Because, I mean, like Apple's not. Absolutely. Apple's spending its own money, right? Right, Apple's and that's, not. Apple I think, has a big lot one of, of cash the largest flow. buyers of. They are, but there are dozens and dozens of big cap companies that are borrowing money, going deeper into debt. Right now, corporate debt is at new world record levels, as are buybacks at world record levels, and so there's a con- there's correspondence there. They're borrowing this. They're borrowing the money. They may they say they're borrowing it for something else, but when they're buying back their stock. It's effectively using borrowed money to do it. And so this is a a road to ruin on the long term. And on the short term, it makes them look genius, right? It makes the stock market go up on a per share basis. It makes the PE ratio come down on a per share basis. It makes everything look better than it actually is. And it's all a grand illusion that's being created 
by super cheap money and super aggressive CEOs that want to make, you know, their bonuses and get rich while the rich is getting, you know, that's like the getting's good. So I would say just to, to wrap up this whole thing on, on buybacks is that one of the real great uses of a buyback when a company's doing buybacks is that it tells you whether the CEO is a mercenary or whether they're a great allocator of capital. If they're buying back their stock at, at prices where the company just isn't worth as, you know, this, this price the market's putting on it, and these guys are buying back stock aggressively, they're a terrible capital allocator, they're a mercenary, they're out for themselves, and for short-term shareholders. They're responding to all of the most negative aspects of the public stock market. And it would be lovely if, you know, we could educate shareholders to simply exit those companies. And if There's- enough of us did it, it would change the world. There's some strong political suggestions to actually stop companies, to put a law in place to stop companies from buying back their own stock and instead require that they use it, that they use that money to pay employees more, to to put money into infrastructure, to do R&D, to essentially put the money into the company. But I think, think, frankly, the politicians particularly want them to just pay employees more. I know. So I feel it. I know, I know Elizabeth Warren is a, is a big promoter of this idea. Um, Here's the thing. In, in my experience in 40 years, um, when you have the, the government that, that when you try to control, when you try to make good things happen from the top down, you find usually there's unintended consequences yeah. that actually can do much more damage than than good. And last time we talked about you know Bill Clinton trying to get a law passed that and effectively passing a law that says you can't pay CEOs more than a million bucks um, and be able to write it all off. And so that resulted in an unintended consequence of massive stock option. Uh, profits to CEOs, even while employees are getting nothing more in their paycheck. Same thing would happen here. You would eliminate the ability of a great allocator like a Warren Buffett to buy back his stock to the benefit of all of the owners of the company. And you also put handcuffs on CEOs. You, you, you've got to, you, we have to go out proactively as individual investors and demand that CEOs pay attention to their employees, pay attention to their suppliers, pay attention to the stakeholders. We have to do that as owners of the business. Yeah. Don't, don't I, forget I com- you're an owner. Yeah, I if completely agree. If you have a mutual agree. fund, you're an owner of most of the good businesses out there in the country. And by asking, by supporting Elizabeth Warren to make it a federal law, all you're doing is abdicating your own responsibility and handcuffing the good CEOs. And ultimately the the downside will be uh, a mess. We'll, we'll have a mess. Yeah, that was my reaction too. It's such a nice idea. Like it's, it's very well intentioned and we all know what the road to hell is paved with. And yeah, it's, it, it, I've just also as a lawyer have seen, so many well-intentioned laws meant to protect small investors, meant to protect consumers, and they end up creating a lot of red tape for companies to jump hoops around, and they always find a way around it because these people are not dumb. And what it creates is a heck of a lot of transaction costs that end up hurting usually the small investor or the consumer. So I love the idea, but I don't know if it's the best way to go. And I think you're exactly right. I love where you went with that. Like, 
it's our job. We need to behave like owners. That's where the breakdown is happening. It should not be top down with laws. It should be bottom up with us, the owners. And, and we don't, we, the people who own shares at all in anything, we don't behave like owners. I know it sounds great to make the world more fair and better for, for, well, and I mean, maybe we're also being people. pie in the sky, like, oh, like we should just act like owners and, you know, therefore everything will be okay. But, and, you know, like probably a lot it, of us still are not going to, but yeah, uh, if we, the people with a little bit of a platform, at least yell it enough, maybe some people will start acting like it. I I truly hope so. I truly hope this podcast can be spurring you guys on to do your job as owners of businesses and, and, you know, don't own the bad ones. Don't own, Mm -hmm. don't own businesses where the CEOs are not taking care of the stakeholders. Don't own businesses where the CEOs are bad allocators of capital. You know, if we have 85% of the money out there in the stock market, if we all, if everybody was acting like an owner, like a Warren Buffett, Oh my gosh, you guys, the world would change so fast. I mean, we would see a revolution in the way corporations are functioning. But right now, we don't have that. Right now, you know, there's a lot of truth in the fact that the corp- management hides behind the corporate veil. They, they're protected from having no skin in the game. And, and it, it's just, it, they, they act badly because of all of those reasons. And, and the control of that is actually in our hands as an owner of the business. And I think please go out there and control them. That's what we should do. Which doesn't have to mean advocacy, right? It can just be no. choosing good ones Move on. and staying away yeah. from the bad Move ones. On. Exactly. Easy. Exactly. Easy. Do it from the couch. Of people move away from a bad company. That company's maybe's going down. You'll see a new CEO in a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah. Somebody's going to be asking, why are our shareholders selling us off? Yeah. And the answer is going to come back because you suck as a, you don't take care of your people. You pay your CEO like he's a, like a, a little 10 God. And, you know, and then the guy's a bad allocator of capital. Of course, we're going to move on. You should all be fired at the board. Of course, we're going to move on. I would, I would love to see that. I'd love to see that kind of revolution. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it would. And until that happens, okay. it's time to go play. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Bye. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.